The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. They ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. When he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. And if this is your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Well, thank you, Megan, and good morning. My name is Ben. I'm on staff here at Restoration, and we are glad you uh, are here this morning worshiping. You could be anywhere, Uh, and so we are honored with your presence and your story this morning. Uh, If I hadn't had a chance to get to say hey and meet you, um, Jared and I and Marnie and others will be around afterwards. Feel free to come say hey. Um, This past week, my wife and I took our two children uh, to uh, Utah for a quick trip to see her family and her siblings. And, um, and we flew out there and uh, with our two kids, our five-month-old son, and our one-year, 363-day-old, which means uh, they're both under two. So when you combine uh, my cheapness and their age, uh, they both were lap babies. That is, uh, four people in two seats as the baby sat on our laps. And my wife and I spent four months uh, of our lives on that four-hour flight as we held and wrestled those children um, and got them to where they needed to be. I tell you all of that to say it was quickly, if you were there, you would know, an unmanageable situation. Too much for us to handle. The story from Mark 9 is just that. It's an unmanageable situation. It's too much for the disciples and this father and this boy to handle. And it's also a beautiful story because there are a lot of characters in it. uh, And no matter who you are, there's something in them that's in you or that's in you that's in them. 
And so with that in mind, we'll look at three things this morning in this passage. We'll see independences in capacity, independences in capacity. Second, uh, dignity amid desperation and doubt. And then third, the restoring power of Jesus. With that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless the study of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you because something has brought us into this room. And as we just sang, uh, I cannot see you, um, but I believe that you walk with me. That's a thing that we revel in at times and rejoice in at times, and other times we're confounded by it and confused by it, and other times we just really don't believe it at all. And so, Lord, whoever we are and however we are, we ask that you would remind us that you are walking with us. You're doing a work in our lives, even when it seems like you're doing all but that. This morning, would you disturb the comfortable? And, Lord, this morning, would you comfort the disturbed? We pray in your name, Christ. Amen. So this morning, we we see first that there's independences in capacity. What's happened in the story in Mark 9, just before this, is we see uh, the transfiguration happen. That Jesus and his three inner-circled guys, uh, James, Peter, and John, have gone up to the mountain, and the transfiguration has taken place where the glory of Jesus has been shown, and God the Father speaks audibly one of the three times, He speaks audibly about the son and said, this is my son, listen to him. He's saying, this is my boy. He's saying, this is the one who I've sent to make all things right. He will not lead you astray. Listen to him. And so uh, that's happened, this glorious kind of awe-inducing, life-altering moment. And then they walk down the mountain, and they're hearing this clatter and this noise and this crowd. And they walk up to this crowd with the nine other disciples and the scribes, and, and they go, and, and Jesus asks, what's going on? Why, what, what's going on? Why are you arguing? And this guy pipes up and says, I brought my, my sick, demon-possessed son to you. And I ask your disciples to heal him, and they can't heal him. And Jesus' words, as he enters into the conversation and the scenario, he says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, it seems like harsh words, but it's important for us to unpack it and really understand and get a grasp on what Jesus is saying here. Zoom out. He's come off the mountain. This amazing, awe-inducing moment of really seeing who Jesus is, and they're going into a place where all of a sudden there's a skirmish and, and there's, there's something going on. And these disciples of Jesus are unable to heal and drive out this demon. Now, if you and I tried to drive out a demon, we would also be unable to do it also. But this is not uh, shocking. This is not some um, strange drop uh, into the narrative. If you go back three chapters into Mark 6, the disciples uh, had been sent out by Jesus to heal and to, to drive out demons, and they did it. They could do that. Jesus gave them power to do it. And here in Mark 9, it's not happening. Why? 
And if we go to the very end of this story, we see and hear, I'll spoil the ending. It says, and he entered the house after healing the boy. His disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The disciples are asked to do something they, they have been able to do in the past and they can't do it. Why? Because they're prayerless. Their powerlessness is directly connected to their prayerlessness. Now, I'm not here to tell you to pray more, pray more, pray more. What I'm here to acknowledge in this passage is that the disciples are incapable because they're working independently from Jesus. They have no ability, no capacity to do anything of note because they're working independently from the God who's brought them to the dance. If you uh, look back in the story of the Old Testament, um, Moses in Exodus led the people from Israel out from slavery, 400 years of slavery, led them out. And they went through the Red Sea and they, after that, they, de- they defeated the Amalekites who tried to kill them. And after that, they were camped at the, the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses goes up Mount Sinai and he gets the, the Ten Commandments from God. And he gets the plans of the tabernacle, which was the plans for the place that God and humanity would meet. And God would give his presence to that place. All big deals. And Moses has these amazing life-altering things that he got from God on the mountain. And he comes down the mountain and and he, he says, I hear something going on in the camp. What is that? And he goes to the camp, and he, and he hears this amazing skirmish going on, and he sees that there's this crowd of the people of Israel who have just been delivered from Israel is now worshiping a golden calf. Exodus 32, Mark 9. What do they share in common? On the mountain, God reveals himself for the benefit of his people, and they come down the mountain only to find the people are wayward and far from God working and worshiping independent of him. We see in the disciples, we see in the Israelites, that we are a people who love and naturally, organically, work independent from the God who offers us everything because we think we can do better than him. Jesus here, it doesn't say, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. He doesn't say that because he's a thin-skinned consultant, that he uh, wasn't consulted on this miracle, and um, therefore he's upset. He's saying, you tried to heal him on your own power, and here I am, the, the, the power bank of all authority in heaven and on earth, and you didn't even consult me in prayer. We access the power that God offers through prayer because it reminds us that God is God and we aren't. Example, when was the last time you prayed to yourself? Oh, Ben, great and powerful Ben, would you do a mighty work in my life, Ben? Right? You, you sense the narcissism in that, but also just the, the foolishness of it. When you pray, you pray to a higher power and you're saying, God, you are God and I'm not. How, how do you approach prayer and its dependence? Because something has brought you to a point of prayer and recognizing I'm so tired of myself and I need more of you. The independence of the people of God 
produces an incapacity for anything good to happen. The independence in the disciples is there, and we see incapacity follow. In the early 2000s, there's this great movie, a little bow wow, called Like Mike. And Like Mike is this movie that uh, little bow wow is this orphaned boy. And at the orphanage, uh, someone dropped off some free stuff, and then the stuff is a pair of shoes. And inside the pair of shoes are two letters sharpied in there, and it's MJ, Michael Jordan. These shoes uh, all of a sudden get struck by lightning. And these magical hand-me-down shoes that were Michael Jordan's now possess a power of greatness. Where this small elementary school boy now goes on to play in the NBA and take the best of the best and absolutely uh, posterize, that's what kids say these days, posterize these amazing players, the best of the best. And then the one game, he doesn't have the shoes. He, all he is is a sub-five-foot little boy playing with the best athletes at the game in which they are great at. And he has absolutely no power. You get the analogy. Without those shoes, without consulting the God of heaven and earth, of all things in prayer and being dependent upon him, the disciples can do nothing. Independence from God produces an incapacity, an inability. And yet our tendency is always to orchestrate our lives in such a way to maneuver, to manage our lives in such a way that if we can avoid crisis, we can avoid dependence upon Jesus. That I will avoid crisis eight days of the week so that I'm not driven to my knees. Because if I avoid crisis, I'm still behind the wheel driving the car. I asked my uncle-in-law, um, which in most families it means nothing, but um, in my family it just happens to mean something. I said, Timo, I'm preaching this week. What do you see in this sermon? And he said that avoiding crises absolutely equates to avoiding Jesus. You want to avoid Jesus? Avoid every crisis that, that, that requires some kind of dependence in you. Crisis averted equals Christ avert, avoided, he said. No crisis, no need for Jesus because I'm free and independent of him. And that's exactly where the disciples are because here the disciples are avoiding a crisis to avoid Jesus because they're seeing Jesus as a peer who can just accomplish stuff rather than a God who's inviting them to be dependent on him. Uh, in college, I was uh, diagnosed with cancer, and I heard about a professor on campus who had a similar cancer story at a similar time of life. So I went to him, and I said, um, you know, tell me, your, tell me how you got through this and what happened with you, and tell me your story. And, and I'll never forget, one thing that he said was when, when he had his first chemo session, he said he remembers leaning back in the Lazy Boy recliner in the infusion center, thinking, I will never be this close to God and dependent upon God ever again. I feel so close to him. And yet, he said, at the very same thought, without a period but a comma, he said, and I know and I'm grieving the fact that once I finish all my treatments and I'm okay again, I'm going to go right back into self-sufficiency and self-reliance. 
him, the disciples, Israel in the Old Testament. We love to work independently from the God that has done everything for us because we think we can do a better job. I ask this extremely humbly for you this morning. Where is God inviting you to cease from avoiding crises, maneuvering and managing your life to avoid crises so that you can avoid dependence upon him? He's a God who longs for you to know he is God and you aren't, and that frees you. Independence is incapacity, but also we see in this passage that Jesus relates to this father with dignity. And in fact, there's dignity amid desperation and doubt. There's dignity amid desperation and doubt. And we read this in uh, verse 20 and onward. It says, And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed to the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. The crux of this entire passage is that immediate imploring of the father to Jesus of, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And those two things, I believe, help my unbelief, faith, doubt, those two things are not contradictions. They're actually an explanation of the spiritual journey. That to truly follow Jesus with all of you involves faith. And it involves doubt. And that actually, um, when you have a faith with doubt, that does not exclude you from Christ's love for you. Because we see in this passage it doesn't. And we're about to really see it. Do you have faith this morning? I'm so glad you're here. Do you have doubt this morning? I'm so glad you're here. Because guess what? All of us do. If you ask anyone who has a beautiful life, maybe later on the road, and you said, what role has doubt played in your life? I guarantee you, it absolutely has been an actor in it, a characteristic in it. And they're beautiful because of it. What we see here is that Jesus treats, even amid doubt, he treats the Father with dignity. This demonic episode is described, and then we see it actually happen. They see it happen, that the boy is convulsed by the demon, and he foams at the mouth, and he does all these things. And the Father kind of just says, it's, it's been happening since childhood. And it tries to kill him. Maybe in the, in the fire or in the water, it tries to kill him. And if, if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us and help us, he says. The father is not saying, hey, I know that you can do it, but are you good enough? He's not saying that. The father is saying, hey, I know you're good, Jesus. And I brought my boy desperately to the disciples to heal him, and they can't heal him. Do you have the ability to heal him? Your boy, your, your, your guys can't do it. Can you do it? And so when Jesus says, 
if I can. He doesn't say, if I can. That's a shame-ridden response. And Jesus never uses shame to motivate. That's Satan's game. He says, if I can. Emphasis on the can. Because then he follows it with the words of, all things are possible for those who believe. And the father who's desperate is desperate because he's at the end of himself. And that's exactly where the place of faith begins. When you're at the end of yourself. The father isn't asking Jesus for a miracle because he thinks he can still do something to fix it. If you're asking for a miracle and you think you can accomplish it still, it's not really a miracle. The father's at the end of himself and that's exactly where the place of faith is. At the end of yourself when you're out of options, when you absolutely are banking on someone else to accomplish the very thing you need. And that's the place of faith where he knows he can't do it. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief because I'm out of options. And so where in your life are you out of options? And you're going to Jesus asking him to do something. Maybe this morning you're, you know he's good, but, but is he powerful enough? Or it's reverse. Maybe you know he's powerful, but I don't know if he's good at all. I don't know if he likes me. Where are you out of options? But also, we need to acknowledge that there is doubt in here. And it would seem like to our eyes that the faith of this father also is, has this doubt that's the greatest liability that nullifies his faith. We do quick math and we think that faith and doubt, aren't, they can't go together, but the doubt nullifies faith and, and casts it out. And what's amazing here in, in this story is that Jesus says, all things are possible for those who believe. If I was the father, I would immediately say, I believe, count me in, sign me up. And this guy doesn't do that. Jesus says, all things are possible for those who believe. And the desperate father says, I believe, help my unbelief. He doesn't give Jesus the answer that he was just given. He doesn't carbon copy it, but he's honest about his life. He doesn't falsify his faith to get what he wants. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. I I got faith in you, Jesus, but also I have no idea how you're going to pull this off. I have doubt. And Jesus doesn't say to him, go away, or do better, or try again. He treats him with dignity even amid his doubt. Because he sees a feeble faith that's betting the farm on him. Everything on Jesus. And he loves that. This Jesus isn't hurt, doesn't have a a slighted ego when you say all things are possible for those who believe and you respond, hey, I kind of believe, but also I have these doubts. He says, I'm going to treat you with dignity. And your doubt isn't too much for me to handle. The true faith doesn't take a fatalistic approach to look at the things around us and say, that's God, that will win the day, we'll see what happens. And also true faith isn't a naive approach where it's head in the sand and pretending. One thing that's really noted about a true faith is that it looks past what is seen because it knows more things are at play. And it can say about the things around it, a true faith can say, it's 
I know you're going to do something, but it's really hard to believe. But I know you will. And it's hard to believe that. Nancy Guthrie wrote a book called uh, God Does His Best Work um, with Empty. And it's what the uh, women on uh, Thursday mornings are going through. You're welcome to join. I have never been, but uh, I've heard good things. And uh, in that book, she says this. She says, faith is believing in what you can't see. But that's not the same as blind faith. Faith looks at observable realities, yet looks beyond them to take into account what is invisible. What's invisible? The power of God and a solid commitment to bring about his purposes in his world. True faith isn't blind, isn't dumb, isn't naive, isn't fatalistic. True faith looks past what can be seen, knowing that what's really at play is that the, the invisible God is working beautifully and powerfully in our lives. And as he deals with us in our desperation, as he deals with us in our doubt, it's not too much for him. True faith is less about feelings and more about vision. Feelings is a harsh mistress. You can go up and down and it will tell you how to feel and what to do and what to believe. But true faith, when it's about vision, it asks you to see things that aren't there all for the goodness of you, not for the goodness of it. If you wonder how Jesus feels about desperate people, I assure you it is a, your prime candidate. And if you wonder how Jesus feels about those who doubt, I'll say it again, you are a prime candidate. And he loves to engage those who are desperate and doubting. Those are his favorite people. Where do you need to echo the words of the Father? I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me see past what I see for what you see and what you're up to. Jesus treats the Father with dignity, even amid his doubt and desperation. But lastly, we see that there's the restoring power of Jesus. There's the restoring power of Jesus. Healing happens. Evil has, um, has the number of the disciples. The disciples can't cast out the demon. Evil has the number of the Father. He's desperate and at the end of himself. Evil has the number of the boy. He can't do anything. He's demon-possessed. He has no control over his own body. Evil eats our lunch every single day. If it didn't, Jesus came for no reason at all. And yet the thing that has our number... The thing that defeats us is d defeated by Jesus. The thing that's too great for us squeals at the thought and the sight of our Savior. And we see it di directly in this. Verse 25 and on. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said, this kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. 
Earlier in Mark, we see in verse 20, Mark notes that when the demon sees Jesus coming, it starts working, and it starts doing its thing. It starts convulsing the boy and terrorizing the boy. It flexes its power because the demon knows when it sees Jesus, it's on borrowed time. If you put evil and Christ, the living God, together, evil shudders and exercises its power only because it's on borrowed time. And Jesus casts out this demon, and, and Jesus drives it out, and the boy, after the demon has done its best, is left lifeless. And people say, he's dead. He's a dead boy now. And what Jesus does, and he goes to what is dead, he goes to what evil has done its best work at, and he goes down, and he touches it, and breathes life into it, and has it arise. The nature of evil is always to take from you. To kill, to corrupt, to destroy, to distort the image of God in you. That is the prime job description of evil. To take what is good in you, the image of God, and distort it and destroy it. That's what we see in this story. And the work of Jesus is the exact opposite because it undoes the work of evil and it reinvigorates what is called by God his and it makes it his again. That God does miraculous works to accomplish what he loves to do, which is call you his and for you to be his. Now, if this was just um, a one-off fireworks kind of uh, miraculous sign, it would be cruel because it would be one-off. It would be standing alone. It would be Jesus just showing what he can do. It's powerful if it's that, but it's cruel. This miracle can only be good, and God's work in our life, too, can only be good if it's attached, if it's attached to something much better, grander, more beautiful. And it is. I know it's hard to be read to, but Tim Keller says this. We modern people think of miracles as a suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has the power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our mind, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. The world we all want is coming because Jesus is at work giving foretastes of the beautiful things to come. That's what Mark 9 is the unclean spirit being driven out. That's what the Gospels are, foretaste of what's to come. It's not just a story to make us feel good. That the God of all things, Mark describes Jesus as a king and a, with a kingdom, that the king of all things is bringing to us now, this very moment, Sunday, April 3rd. I had to think about it for a second. The king of all things on April 3rd, 2022, is giving us just 
like he did in Mark 9, foretastes of the kingdom to come. Because he's not just powerful enough to do it, but he's good enough to have it be reverberations into eternity, an appetizer for what's to come. How will he do it? He'll trade spots with the boy. The boy was riddled with evil and overcome by it, and Jesus heals him. But before he heals him, they say he's dead. And Jesus, who defeats evil in this, will be defeated by evil. And he won't just look dead, he will be dead. He defeats the thing in this story that we can never defeat. Evil. He will be defeated by the thing in our place that we can never defeat so that we can never be defeated again. That the king of all things says, you are beautiful enough. The real you, not the country club you, not the the LinkedIn you, not the uh, neighbor you. The real you is beautiful enough to be defeated by the thing he can defeat so that you can be his. And as we follow him, we're invited to say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, we feel like the disciples so often where we can't fix the evil at play in our lives. It could send us, that mere fact can send us to frustration because we just want to do better and be better. It could send us to anger uh, because we're just not good enough. It could send us to shame because we are the sum of our mistakes. And yet you offer a better story because you say evil has no merit and is no match for you. Take the evils of our life that is eating our lunch, cast them out, and in its place remind us that you're a God who takes us as we lay lifeless and as evil has done its best work on us by the hand and has us rise. Lord, we long to know that you're up to something good. We believe, help our unbelief this very day. We pray in your name, Christ. Amen. It has us rise. Lord, we long to know that you're up to something good. We believe, help our unbelief this very day. We pray in your name, Christ. Amen.